and welcome to the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast series. My name is Paul Miles and today I'm talking with Kareem L. Belgdadley, a consultant anaesthetist at Guy's Hospital in the UK. He is also the lead author of a major paper published in the journal Anesthesia, describing a multi-college and society consensus statement on the timing of elective surgery and risk assessment after coronavirus infection. Kareem, can you tell us about the background to these UK guidelines and what the main recommendations are? Yeah, thanks very much for that, Paul. It's an absolute pleasure to be here to talk to you uh, and uh, and all of the listeners uh, of this podcast. The guidelines are really an update uh, on a set of guidelines that we had published last year. Uh, we recognized that uh, people needed a little bit of support in clinical decision making to uh, a t- appropriately time surgery after COVID, after patients have had a SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now, what happened is last year, we had some reasonably robust data from the COVID Surge Collaborative who looked at um, uh, evidence for timing of surgery. They formed the International Multicenter Prospective Observational Study. And what they found was that uh, there was a very clear uh, association between the timing of surgery after an infection and adverse outcomes, both morbidity and mortality. Now that was last year and that was in the era of Delta, but we'd moved on from Delta. Uh, and, and since the guidance last year was published, we've had uh, uh, Omicron emerge and we've also had widespread vaccination. And in the face of a massive surge of Omicron that we had certainly in the UK starting in December onwards, uh, and in the face of a massive ramp up of our uh, vaccination booster program, people really had uh, uncertainty about what the right thing to do in terms of timing of surgery uh, after a SARS-CoV-2 infection, certainly in the setting of uh, Omicron and vaccination. Uh, And really, the key summary of what we what we uh, opted to recommend was that one shouldn't base timing of surgery on uh, on you know the time alone, but actually risk assessment, and that's really key here. We should be assessing all of our patients uh, um, uh, in terms of risk and additional risk of surgery within seven weeks of a SARS-CoV-2 infection. And we tried to support clinicians by providing them a simple risk assessment tool to help with with decision-making and communication and shared decision-making with our patients. And that was really the crux of it. So timing and risk assessment, rather than just saying timing alone. Thank you for that. I think we'll come back to that risk assessment in just a moment, but I'd like to clarify just a few things if I can for our listeners. do you think there's a difference in the risk uh, of a people who, who have recovered from SARS-CoV-2 infection for those who've had a purely asymptomatic uh, infection versus those with mild or more symptomatic disease? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, the data suggested that um, uh, even if you had asymptomatic infection, in fact, even if you had a incidental um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, so no symptoms at all, and it was just picked up on preoperative screening, those patients who had asymptomatic infections still had an elevated risk of mortality if, if they received their surgery within seven weeks of that diagnosis of infection. Uh, of course, the risk is greater in patients who are symptomatic and, of course, uh, significantly greater in those who were severely symptomatic, so hospitalized patients or those that needed uh, um, intensive care treatment. Regardless of the severity of your COVID, 
whether it's asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic, or fully symptomatic, risks were always increased, but proportionally so depending on the degree of symptoms. Right. Thank you for that. I think it's a really important message for, for everybody that even completely asymptomatic uh, infection of itself still carries some increase in risk. Um, now, of course, we're talking primarily about data that's derived from the Delta variant. And of course, we now, uh, I think, have got good evidence that the Omicron and even the BA2 variant of that that's just come out in more recent times, uh, certainly uh, more often um, uh, leads to a milder or even asymptomatic illness. How do you think that relates to the, the data that led to your guidelines? How, do you think, in fact, that the, um, the current pandemic with the less potent variants uh, may reduce perioperative risk? Well, I'll come back to, uh, to what we've just touched upon, which was if asymptomatic patients with Delta still had an increased risk, then how can I, with full confidence, say that um, uh, asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic patients with Omicron do not have an elevated risk? Uh, and that's the key here, really, is, is the fact that, you know, we had evidence that even if you didn't have symptoms, you didn't do as well as we would have hoped. Uh, now, what we do know is that whilst Omicron uh, is generally a milder disease, the evidence does seem to suggest that patients may be more likely to have symptoms anyways. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, j just thinking about that, it suggests that there is a systemic immune uh, impact of Omicron. The fact that asymptomatic patients previously had uh, worse outcomes also suggests that it's about the immune response rather than the physiological um, symptoms and signs that people may have. And so that immune response may or may not be significantly different with Omicron. We, we, we really don't know. But uh, if it was myself, if it was my, my mother, my father, I would want to, I would want to be more confident that it is safe to ignore Omicron and to treat it significantly different to Delta before saying surgery within seven weeks is not associated with increased risk. Very good. So again, to emphasize that obviously us as um, uh, anesthesiologists and perioperative physicians, we've always had a very high premium on safety uh, and certainly without compelling evidence uh, otherwise, uh, we should still assume that there's risk even for asymptomatic disease and, and obviously therefore with both the Omicron and more recent BA2 variant. Now you mentioned this, um, this, this time frame of seven weeks post-infection. Now is this seven weeks from the onset of symptoms or diagnosis or resolution of symptoms? When, when does the seven week time period start? So the data was based on evidence that seven weeks from the diagnosis uh, of um, uh, SARS-CoV-2, and that was usually with either a PCR, uh, the data was actually mainly PCR and not lateral flow tests or antigen testing. Uh, so uh, it, it's not resolution of symptoms because symptoms might not have resolved by the time patients present for surgery. It may be uh, much longer than seven weeks as we know now. Um, so it's based on the point of, uh, uh, of lab-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. Okay, so from diagnosis. Yes, correct. Thank you for that. Now, coming back to the consensus statement, you know, more generally, did you have consumer involvement in this process? 
Yeah, so so the consensus statement is actually, uh, it's the same group that we used before, and we had patient involvement in the um, uh, formulation of the guidance as well. We had uh, surgeons, uh, anesthetists, we had senior consultants, junior consultants, trainees as well, uh, as part of the, the uh, guidelines group. So we tried to be as broad as we can. And, and we'd also sent the guidelines for review from uh, uh, the, the patient groups, uh, from the uh, expert panels that we were all engaged and involved in as well. Uh, we'd also presented it to NHS England um, uh, ahead of publications to see, to see if, if it was something that was extremely, you know, uh, people were would be really averse to the concept that we're saying, which is stick to seven weeks with risk assessment, um, uh, rather than saying, just move on, don't worry about Omicron. Uh, and the feedback that we got was all kind of built into the recommendations that we made. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think that's one of the great um, values of uh, the, your published consensus statement uh, in the journal Anesthesia. It seems to have had very broad um, input from a range of interested parties, obviously starting from the patients themselves, including uh, all the diff different specialist groups that uh, manage patients in the perioperative process, uh, obviously including the Royal College of Anesthetists and also the College of Surgeons. Um, but again, you've also um, partnered, as you say, with NHS England and other groups to really give, I think, um, you know, a really, I mean, I see that almost as a really excellent um, evidence-based policy level. And I think that's really, really important, which makes these guidelines, I think, so impactful, not just for the UK, but around the world. Now, let's just come back for a moment around, um, you know, the risk assessment part of it. What, what do you think are the major concerns that need a special focus for in the preoperative planning and evaluation? Yeah, so I think uh, there's a couple of things that we had thought about. There's obviously, you've got to consider the patient's baseline risk, first and foremost. Uh, and one thing that we really wanted to drive through this as well is uh, increasing the concept that baseline risk should be quantitatively assessed uh, and estimated, uh, which we know people don't do very well. It's often guesswork and people don't necessarily always spend a lot of time using risk assessment tools that are validated. And the tool that we had recommended is the SORT2 um, uh, um, clinician tool. But whatever tool you use that's validated, assess each patient's baseline risk. Now, once you've assessed that baseline risk, then it comes to layering on top of that what the additional risk of proceeding with surgery within seven weeks might be. So this is risk modifiers. So you've got that baseline risk. And then we say, right, okay, each element of this patient's presentation, be it, uh, or, or demographic, be it their age or their ASA, the type of surgery that they're having and how severe their COVID uh, was, whether they were hospitalized, each of these adds uh, a degree of, of risk. And we estimated that it was, uh, you know, uh, around one, two, or three, threefold really increased risk with each of these layered on. So once we've effectively worked out how many additional risk factors um, uh, patients have on top of their baseline risk. We could then use those two bits of information to, to, to kind of weigh up with the patient with shared decision-making, weigh up what the risks of deferring surgery would be and the risks of uh, proceeding with surgery within seven weeks of an infection. Excellent. So again, you, you, you emphasize that point of shared decision-making, which again ought to be the 
what current uh, best practice should be in any case, but crucial here uh, when weighing up the pros and cons. And we can see that the, um, uh, the, the risks of deferring surgery become more problematic, obviously, for cancer and, and some other uh, more critical uh, surgical conditions, but at the same time, the more elective, um, uh, the, 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 the indication for surgery, um, the more e easier and probably more rational it is to defer further, particularly, as you say, if they're deemed to be in a slightly higher perioperative risk strata. So you mentioned um, uh, in your statement that, of course, you've um, you've emphasised the use of the SORT tool, which has been well validated uh, right across the UK, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but there are other um, uh, risk tools available around the world, such as ENS, SQIP, and so on. Um, do you think it's particularly important whether one is used more than another or just any uh, ideally validated risk tool would be suitable? Yeah, I mean, my, my view is uh, any validated tool uh, is, is sufficient. You, you, the, the key is that you're actually uh, thinking about the, that patient's risk and, and, and actually trying to quantify it so that you can make an informed decision rather than estimating, but actually quantify it. So I would say any validated risk tool, such as the, the Nesquip one um, uh, uh, as an example, yeah, okay. So again, um, you know, the more precise the information, obviously the better quality um, uh, the advice and therefore the shared decision-making. So can you perhaps give us an example of a real-life example where the clinical judgment and the personalised risk assessment are emphasised in your guidelines? You know, just some uh, you know, case perhaps that you yourself have dealt with in, in recent times or you've heard about that really exemplifies uh, the value of this risk assessment process in patients who have recovered from coronavirus infection? Yeah, so I mean, uh, unfortunately, I am the, the corresponding author for the guidelines and uh, I was for the previous ones. And I've been receiving uh, uh, weekly emails from patients and clinicians across the UK seeking advice. So I have, I've seen a wide range of sort of presentations where where this, this challenging decision-making uh, needs to be made. Uh, and uh, an, an example that I, that I had recently is a, is a patient who has been waiting two years, uh, obviously because of the pandemic, two years to have uh, a hip replaced. Uh, this is a 75-year-old woman with, with uh, you know, a few comorbidities. ASA was, was a, a soft three, um, uh, and she'd had, she'd had COVID four weeks previously and she just had mild symptoms and they had resolved so you know I had this discussion with the surgeon was really keen to to proceed because you know waiting lists and we certainly had six million patients waiting for surgery in the UK and there's all of these additional extrinsic pressures um, uh, but the surgeon was keen to proceed and, and I, I really wanted to have this discussion with the patient uh, and, you know, we quantified her baseline risk, which we worked out to be intermediate. And we talked a little bit about her additional risk factors. So she was older than 70 years old and she had an ASA of, of three and she didn't have any ongoing symptoms. She wasn't hospitalized, but she has these two risk factors that suggest that actually there is a potential increase in risk for this patient. And I had a, a good discussion with her um, uh, and with the surgeon, and we'd agreed actually that uh, it's better to err on the side 
of safety for this patient and defer surgery for for at least another three weeks. We did that, and a month later, she um, uh, came back for her surgery, and uh, she did very well. And I think that 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 case is, you know, I think we made the right call for her because because I, we she may have been absolutely fine, but if she wasn't fine, then. I'd be kicking myself. I'd be really upset that that maybe we 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 could have deferred because we had the opportunity to have that discussion with her. And then I contrast that with a patient that that we've had recently who has uh, breast cancer, needed uh, um, a mastectomy, uh, and has been on chemotherapy. Now, this patient, uh, we could have this patient that had uh, COVID. Um, uh, I think it was four or five weeks previously, and we could have delayed for for a couple of weeks potentially. However, the patient was extremely anxious, uh, and uh, and she was very very prepared to take on any additional risks. And we went through our risk assessment tool with her. She was an intermediate additional risk, intermediate for increased risk, but. When we considered the risks of deferring surgery, it wasn't just the risks to her uh, physical well-being, but also to her psychological well-being, because this woman was extremely stressed, extremely anxious with her cancer. And so with that shared decision-making process, the right decision for her was to proceed with surgery, recognizing that she was at an intermediate risk of increased complications. So there's two cases there that have kind of talked to you through a little bit, uh, uh, showing what the benefits of going through with patients, the baseline risks, the additional risks, and the risks of deferring surgery, not just on uh, disease progression, but on the patient's well-being as well. Excellent. They really do, I think, highlight um, what the main messages are of the paper. Now, I want to make it just a bit harder for you and also for the listeners. You know, I read in recent days that the BA2 variant uh, certainly seems to be far more transmissible even than Omicron. Uh, and in fact, there seems to be a substantial proportion of people, uh, at least in the UK, I'm sure this will become worldwide very soon, uh, in the community right now who, um, who are entirely asymptomatic, uh, apparently well, um, with a prevalence rate seemingly um, of you know, active infection right now of somewhere between 10 and 20%. Now, if that's the case, how is that going to impact on elective surgery planning, both in the UK and even here for us in, uh, in Australia? Uh, we're really in a very difficult um, uh, place right now, to be honest with you, Paul, because uh, testing uh, has become a lot less rigorous than before. So during Omicron, there was widespread availability of testing and the government was really uh, pushing everyone to be tested. But that's kind of ramped down a little bit recently. And the data showing that anywhere between 10, 20% of the population who are positive with it, uh, that's actually um, uh, self-selected people who are presenting for screening for any uh, purposes, mild symptoms. But the number may actually be a little bit bigger. The other issue that we have right now is that um, our booster program was so effective that we got a large proportion of the population boosted in September, October, November, December. For some of us, it's been more than six months since our booster. And for some of us, our immunity may not be as robust as it was perhaps previously. 
I don't know what the impact of that will be on pair operative outcomes, but what I do know is I really don't think that we could ignore we could ignore um, uh, BA two at the moment. I think that we need to treat it as we did Omicron. I think that we need to be cautious for individual patients' benefit, not just population benefit, but for individual patients' benefit. Uh, and time will tell what's uh, what's going to happen with with uh, BA two. We're seeing lots of patients who who actually do have mild symptoms. But, you know, I, I, I'm really not sure where we're going to be going with this. Yes, it's been such a dynamic story all along. And I think um, all the experts, um, including um, those in healthcare, have uh, in some ways been playing catch up every step of the way. And I think that now becomes, uh, there's this new story of the BA2 variant, for instance, which I think will be really interesting how it plays out and how, how much impact it will have on certainly for surgery. Now, I know you're not directly involved in the COVID surge uh, pro, um, you know, program, which has been immensely valuable for um, getting some data and evidence around uh, the surgical setting. Um, but can you tell us what you know of um, what data collection processes are happening now and how that might better inform us in the months ahead? Yeah, so COVID surge has been really, really important for guiding our uh, recommendations throughout and what we do in the perioperative setting. Uh, at the moment, the study has, uh, I think in the next few days, is going to be closed for data collection. And what the study, the COVID surge 3, is looking at is a perioperative uh, infection with SARS-CoV-2 which is going to be with Omicron infection and looking at the effect of a perioperative infection on patient outcomes. There's been at least 6,000 patients who have been recruited prospectively to the study so far. So big numbers globally, again, the early data, it's, I mean, it's really, it's really hard to say, but, but, but having looked at some of the early data, I, I think it justifies a little bit of caution still. I think being a little bit cautious it may end up being the right thing to do. I don't. I can't really speak much about what the what the final data is going to show, but but I can say that uh, uh, it's definitely encouraged me to continue with uh, my degree of caution. Yes, thank you for that. Again, that's for our listeners, especially just to um, again watch out for the uh, when these data become publicly available, and I imagine that will be in the next uh, month or so, uh, and that will I think better inform us about the contemporary. Um, pandemic, um, you know, there's the, the changing variants, the increased transmissibility have all been factors. And as you said at the start of this um, uh, podcast, uh, you know, in the background of this are the, the, the absolutely crucially important protective factors of mass vaccination um, and, and getting a booster uh, and how important that's been in protecting um, individual people, patients, and of course the health system itself. So, um, Kareem Albert Dudley, I've been uh, delighted to speak with you on this subject. I think it's a fascinating and crucially important area of contemporary perioperative medicine. And I want to thank you for your contribution uh, to all of this work, and particularly the consensus statement published in the recent um, issue of the journal Anesthesia. Uh, thanks very much for the conversation. Thank you very much for hosting me, Paul. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Mm -hmm.